wildfire. Chances are that hearing those words, you had an emotional reaction, maybe akin to Frankenstein's monster. Fire bad. And who can blame you? Just a few weeks ago, a wind-driven fire near Boulder, Colorado, destroyed over a thousand homes and businesses. Since the early 40s, Smokey the Bear has been telling us that only you can prevent forest fires. In 2019, wildfires burned 3 million acres in Australia, and it seems like parts of the western United States are constantly ablaze. And unlike other destructive natural events, like say a tornado or an earthquake, which are intense but last for a relatively short period of time, a wildfire can burn for months and seem to be unstoppable. Now, I'm not going to tell you that those fires weren't disastrous, but we humans have a bad habit of creating our own problems when it comes to nature. Sometimes our good intentions have consequences that we didn't really anticipate, and fire is actually not only an important part, but in some cases a vital part of many ecosystems. While it can be destructive, it can also be a valuable tool, and that's what we'll be talking about today. I'm your host, Tim, the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. An out-of-control wildfire is both awe-inspiring and terrifying, and I'm speaking from experience. In the early 2000s, my wife and I were stationed at Vandenberg Air Force Base near Lompoc, California. A fire sparked by power lines and driven by high winds tore through the area, burning 100 acres every 15 minutes. And coming within a mile of our house, we had the car loaded and were ready to evacuate at a moment's notice if necessary. And we watched the fire from the roof of our house. Seeing a six-mile ridgeline completely engulfed in flames hundreds of feet high boggled my mind. Like I said, it was awe-inspiring and terrifying. Now, fortunately, no lives were lost in that fire, but the path of the fire was about a mile wide and 15 miles long. What was really amazing was that within just a couple of weeks, all that blackened ground began to turn green again as the vegetation re-sprouted. Now, in order to understand where we are regarding wildfire in this country, we need to understand how we got to this point. And to do that, we have to jump in the Wayback Machine and go back to 1871. The summer of 1871 was a tough one in the Midwestern states. It was hot and it was dry. On October 8, 1871, a cold front moved in, bringing strong west winds. Now, I'm sure you've heard of the Great Chicago Fire, started accidentally in the O'Leary barn and driven by the winds of this cold front. It killed 300 people and destroyed 3.3 miles of the city. But Chicago was not the only place burning that day. Across the Midwest, many farmers were burning to clear the land, and the strong west winds that drove the Chicago fire also escalated those fires into what would become a firestorm. Chicago may have been the most prominent place that burned that day, but by far the worst hit was the town of Peshtigo, Wisconsin, and its surrounding communities, which were completely obliterated. The Peshtigo fire is considered to be the deadliest wildfire in history. It's estimated that between 1,500 and 2,500 people died, and $5 million worth of property was destroyed in a blaze that burned 1.2 million acres. This was the spark, if you'll pardon the pun, that led to the creation of our national forests. 
concern for protecting commercial timber supplies and watersheds led to the establishment of national forest reservations. Fire suppression became an economic issue as well as a safety issue. In 1905, shortly after the creation of the first National Forest Reservations, the National Forest Service was created to manage the nation's forests. Now, many foresters of the time recognized the benefit of what they called light burning, what we later would call controlled burns or prescribed fire. Foresters in the southeastern states and California had used fire to keep the understory vegetation in check and prevent larger fires. However, it was thought that the public wouldn't understand the difference between appropriate and inappropriate use of fire. The Young Forest Service also needed to justify their existence and set themselves apart from rural farmers who used fire to clear the land and Native Americans who also used intentionally set fires to their advantage, and I'll talk more about that a little later. So they adopted a policy of fire suppression. Additionally, in 1908, Congress passed the Forest Fires Emergency Act, which said that in a fire emergency, the Forest Service could put any available funds towards suppression, and Congress would reimburse them. Funding was not unlimited, but at the same time, it didn't have a specified limit, making fire suppression now a political issue, too. In 1910, just five years after the Forest Service's creation, Wildfires across the West burned 5 million acres, destroying 8 million board feet of timber. This would be the first test of the Forest Fires Emergency Act. The Forest Service spent $1.1 million fighting the fires, about 20% of their budget, and they were reimbursed. Today, that would be over $30 million. This policy, as you can well imagine, didn't really motivate the Forest Service to determine an optimal level of fire suppression and pursue that level efficiently. In fact, the same year the Forest Fires Emergency Act was passed, Yale University published a study documenting the fire dependence of the southern longleaf pine. But the financial incentives of the Forest Fires Emergency Act not only kept the Forest Service from pursuing light burning, it led them to suppressing not just fires, but the Yale study and other pro-burning studies for many decades. Economically, it was better for the Forest Service to fight large fires than to conduct light burning or allow some naturally caused fires in uninhabited areas to run their course. The early 30s saw several more severe fire seasons. When the Civilian Conservation Corps was created in 1933 as a response to the Great Depression, many men were put to work building fire breaks and fighting fires. In 1935, the Forest Service established the 10 a.m. policy, which sought to have any fire suppressed by 10 a.m. the day after its report. The onset of World War II brought a renewed urgency to the wildland fire suppression effort. First of all, most able-bodied men were serving in the armed forces, leaving fewer behind to fight fires. What you might be surprised to learn, I know I was, is that the Japanese attempted to use wildfires as a weapon against the contiguous 48 states. In 1942, a Japanese submarine surfaced near Santa Barbara, California, and shelled an oil field near Los Padres National Forest. Later in the war, the Japanese released about 9,000 hydrogen balloons into the jet stream over a six-month period. These balloons carried anti-personnel and incendiary explosives. Dubbed fire balloons, almost a thousand of these reached the U.S., some landing as far east as Detroit, Michigan. There were only six fatalities as a direct result of this strategy. 
A pregnant woman and five children were killed in Oregon after disturbing a balloon while on a picnic. The only other death linked to the fire balloons was a firefighter killed in the line of duty. However, authorities concluded that the greatest potential danger from the balloons was wildfires on the West Coast. So it was against this backdrop of fear of air raid drills, blackout curtains, and wildfires becoming a weapon of war that the U.S. began to get even more aggressive about fire suppression in wild areas and try to educate the public about the dangers of wildfire. Starting in 1947, Smokey Bear's mantra was, Only you can prevent forest fires. It wasn't until 1970 that the Forest Service acknowledged the ecological benefits of fire and started allowing some naturally occurring fires to burn under specific weather conditions. Although the public service announcements at the time still played on that fear of the destructive nature of forest fires. It only takes a minute to wipe out a century. A flash and nothing. And even the birds won't come anymore. The Forest Fires Emergency Act was repealed in 1978, and that same year the Forest Service officially abandoned its policy of extinguishing all fires as quickly as possible. Coincidence? Probably not. Still, it wasn't until 2001 that forest fire was replaced with wildfire in Smokey Bear's mantra to differentiate between unplanned fires in all wild areas, such as grasslands, and what we now call prescribed fires, something I'm going to talk about in a little bit. Right now, I want to encourage you to kind of change your thinking about the terms good and bad when it comes to natural events. Really, natural events are only good or bad as they relate to their impact on us. For example, a rainy day might be bad weather for me to go on a bike ride, but it's a good day to stay inside and read, and the rain might be good for crops or the forest. A blizzard might cancel your travel plans and make it a bad day to be out driving around, but in mountain regions, that snowstorm might be adding to the snowpack, which is an important source of water throughout the summer. Likewise, a fire in a wildland ecosystem is only bad in relation to its impact on lives or property. A fire that puts people in danger and destroys property, like the recent ones in Colorado, that's bad. But it doesn't mean that all fires in wildlands are bad. The thing to remember is that naturally ignited fires, most often from lightning strikes, are a natural part of the ecosystem and have been since the beginning of time. Fire has an important function in the ecosystem, like returning nutrients to the soil. And in fact, for some species, fire is a necessary part of their life cycle. Forestry people like to talk about the return interval of fire, how often fires typically burn through an area. An ecosystem like the Great Plains historically had a fire return interval as short as three to five years. If you live in the Great Plains, you know you're very familiar with the thunderstorms that roll through in the summertime. And it's easy to imagine a lightning strike in the dry prairie grasses igniting a fire. Frequent return interval of fire is one of the primary reasons why there were very few trees to be found on the Great Plains. Fire kept the process of ecological succession, where one plant community gives way to different plant communities in a predictable order, at bay. Absent a disturbance, grasses naturally give way to forests. Naturally occurring fire didn't allow trees to become established on the plains if they were not adapted to fire. In the hardwood forests of the northeastern United States, the fire return interval for a low to moderate severity fire was around 40 years. In the redwood forests of Northern California, the return interval of fire was about 20 years. 
Generally speaking, the longer the return interval, the more severe the fire. Areas prone to frequent fires burn with low severity. A longer return interval results in more severe, sometimes even what is called stand-replacing fire, a fire that kills all the trees. But even in areas with a long fire return interval, the vegetation is adapted to these types of severe fire events. Longleaf pine in the southeastern U.S. requires fire to clear out competing vegetation. When it first starts to grow, it's a spindly, almost grass-like plant. But even at that stage, it's resistant to fire. The terminal bud is protected from the heat of a fire by a tightly packed group of needles. After a fire clears out competing vegetation and opens the canopy, the longleaf pine sprouts vigorously and grows a thick bark to protect it from future fires. Douglas fir and ponderosa pines have also evolved thick bark that lets them withstand a low-intensity fire. Yellowstone National Park gives us another great example of an ecosystem adapted to severe fires. Lodgepole pine forest constitutes about 80% of Yellowstone. The fire return interval for this ecosystem is right around 100 years. Lodgepole and jack pines require intense heat to open their cones and release their seeds. They need fire to regenerate. In 1988, fires burned about 1.5 million acres of Yellowstone over a three-month period, destroying about a third of the park's vegetation and forcing officials to close the park to visitors for the first time since its creation in 1872. Historically speaking, a fire like this was a perfectly natural part of the ecosystem, but the public was outraged at the destruction of America's first national park, and the fire policy was reevaluated. Today, only a small percentage of fires are allowed to burn on federal land. The problem with this policy of total fire suppression is that when fires do ignite, they tend to be worse. The absence of fire causes a buildup of brushy understory. Fuel load is the amount of burnable material in an ecosystem. Frequent fires keep the fuel load low, and when a fire happens, it tends to burn low to the ground. Understory buildup allows fires to burn higher. Foresters refer to this as ladder fuels because they can allow the fire to climb from the ground up into the canopy. And a canopy fire is much larger and harder to deal with. In addition, we have climate change exacerbating things, making things warmer and drier. In our zeal to protect timber resources, private property, and the visual appeal of our natural areas, we've essentially spent billions of dollars and succeeded in increasing the danger posed by fire while decreasing the health of our natural areas. Estimated costs of fighting wildfires in the U.S. in 2020 was over $20 billion. As our population grows, there are also more people living in what we call the urban-wildland interface, the border between urban areas and wildland areas, meaning that we're putting more people and property in the danger zone. The Peshtigo fire I mentioned at the beginning is just one of the first examples of fire in the urban-wildland interface. Now let's turn our attention to what we call prescribed fire. When we talk about prescribed fire, what we mean is fire set intentionally under specific conditions that allows us to burn only what we want and to accomplish a specific goal. It's a prescription to help maintain the health of an ecosystem. Native Americans were using fire to their advantage long before the arrival of Europeans. The landscape encountered by the early settlers was largely a result of repeated and often intentional burning. 
Anthropologists have identified at least 70 different reasons why native people used prescribed fire, including encouraging the growth of desired plants like berries and oak trees, reducing pests like ticks, clearing travel routes, and enhancing habitat for game. The Native American people recognized the value of fire in their environment and understood how to use it as a tool to their advantage. Fontenelle Forest Nature Center, located in Bellevue, Nebraska, just south of Omaha, is just one of many natural areas that use prescribed fires as a tool to enhance the health of the forest. Joining me now in the studio, and full disclosure, by joining, I mean we had a Zoom call, and by studio, I mean I'm in my bedroom closet because it's the quietest room in my house. To tell us more about how fire is used at Fontenelle Forest is Michelle Foss, Fontenelle Forest's Director of Stewardship and Research. Hi, Michelle. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Tim? Good. So what makes fire an important tool at Fontenelle? What are the benefits to controlled burns? So our ecosystem is fire adapted. That means that it evolved with fire as one of the factors in the system. So prairies, woodlands, even most forests have a fire interval that is the most succession successful um, in the ecosystem. So for example, uh, there are pine forests out west that require fire in order to open the pine cones to regenerate. So we're not quite as extreme here. The fire in our oak woodlands and prairies helps to keep the woody invaders out of the system. So when you think of a forest, you think of a whole bunch of trees pretty close together, but that's not really what our area should look like. We should be more open. So the fire helps to select the areas where the bur oaks specifically and some red oaks and their associated trees and plants can grow. Uh, where the fire burns is where you have that type of system. Where the fire goes out farther down the slopes as you get closer to water, that's where you have the uh, ironwoods and hackberry type system. So fire is just one of the ways that the systems are kept in check and kept healthy. Awesome. And, and I've heard you talk about burn season. Um, we just can't burn whenever we want. So what is what are the best times of year to conduct a controlled burn? So we tend to have three different seasons. We have spring, growing season, and fall. And the spring and fall seasons are typically when things are dormant. It's a little hard to burn when there's snow on the ground and when there's not enough sunlight throughout the day uh, to keep the fuels dry. So we typically say our burn windows are between mid-February and mid-April, very much dependent on the weather, the soil moisture conditions, fuel moisture, um, and how the winter was. And then we have our growing season burns. Um, depending on where specifically they are, there are different migratory bird rules that we have to follow and certain times we can't burn. So we can burn a little bit into May and then we can burn later in the summer as well. And that just targets a different type of plant that it's affecting. So for example, we would target brome in that growing season burn because that's when it's affected the most and it's least effective or at least affecting the native plants that we're trying to promote. Then we have our fall dormant season. 
and that's typically the month of November-ish. So it's a little bit harder in the fall sometimes because it might be rainy, it could be snowy, it could be too cold, uh, the relative humidity could be too high, uh, or the fuels aren't down out of the trees yet because we primarily burn oak leaves and some grasses. Okay, and how much, how much area do you burn at one time? It depends. It depends on the winds, it depends on the crew, uh, how many people we have and of what skill level. It depends on our equipment. Um, we have some units that are a handful of acres, 10, 15, and we have some units that are up to about 300 acres. So if we have the people, we have the time, we have the weather conditions, the equipment, we can do a pretty good chunk at once. Okay, and that kind of leads me into my next question, which is, I know you don't just wake up in the morning and, you know, test the wind and decide it's a great day to burn. You, you have to do a lot of things before you can burn. Um, so what are kind of the, the preparations that you need to have in place? Well, first of all, communication. So we can't do anything without communicating with the fire departments. We actually deal with three different fire departments um, in this partnership, and we are in communication with them throughout the year. Uh, Bellevue Fire Department has been an excellent partner, and we have been working with them since 2015 to get this going. So them understanding both our goals and our prescription, which I'll get to in a minute, is critical to us having a successful program. So our prescription is the conditions in which an ecological and safe burn are predicted to occur. So each unit is slightly different with the direction of winds, what our fuel moisture needs to look like, and the temperature and humidity on both that burn day, but also the days following. When we have a prescribed fire, there are oftentimes logs that will burn for days afterwards. So we have to take post conditions into account too. So we have to monitor the weather and we have to monitor what each of the units looks like. So we have to know, um, are the leaves fluffy and ready to burn? Or is everything matted down from heavy snow? Um, do we have the equipment prepped? We use UTVs with a slide-on skid. So it's got 50-gallon capacity and a pump and a hose. So we have mini fire engines. Um, we have drip torches, which is how we apply fire to the ground. We have hand tools, which is how we keep the fire in the box, so to speak. Um, we have bladder bags that we use um, when we're patrolling a hand line where we have to go out and walk on the, the side of the hill looking for a fire that's looking to escape. So we have to have our equipment game on. So all year long, we're making sure that our fire equipment is fixed and ready to go. So let's see, that's equipment, prescription, fire department, um, communication with neighbors and staff. Everybody needs to know what we're doing because it would be terrifying to drive towards your house and seeing a column of smoke coming up and not knowing if that's, you know, Fontenot Forest doing a prescribed fire or if your house was on fire. Right. So communication's a big deal. And then crew. So the staff members all have advanced training in the National Wildland Firefighter Coordinating Group. So that's the federal training system for wildland fire. So we all have the basic, which we require everybody on our crew to have. So that is your training for a type two wildland firefighter. 
that's the basics of um, fire language, the incident command system, um, and fire behavior. So that's actually a 40-hour course. So it's, it's a pretty, pretty big deal to do that in order to help us burn. On top of that, the staff has experience. Um, some of us have been doing this a really long time. Some of us have only done it a couple of years. We also have three firefighters on our staff who also do wildland firefighting. So they also have experience out fighting wildfires. Um, let's see, we've taken trainings in wildland fire chainsaw, um, how to use pumps and hoses, um, advanced fire behavior, uh, leadership on the fire line. We've taken a lot of different trainings to keep us up on what's going on in the fire world, as well as to keep our skills sharp. We take what we do very seriously. We know that fire can be scary and we have a huge responsibility to keep the fire where it's supposed to stay. And, and you monitor those fires until they're really out. Yes. So for several days after the fire, we are out there pretty much around the clock. We have at least two people monitoring and patrolling, especially our trouble spots. So we'll drive roads, we'll go hiking at night, um, we'll take our UTVs out uh, just to make sure that the fire is contained. And now I know a lot of people probably worry about our wildlife. Um, how do the prescribed burns impact our animals? It depends on the type of burn, the season, and all of that. So the big thing to keep in mind is that we are working on a systems level. So we don't work at a species level because that doesn't provide for everything in the system. So there is probably some mortality when we do a fire, unfortunately. However, things like deer, rabbits, um, even squirrels can easily escape our fires. They're very low flame fronts um, and they don't move very quickly. So uh, it's, it leaves plenty of time for animals to get out of the way. Our biggest mortality issues are areas um, that burn really hot that may have had overwintering insects. But even then, our fires don't burn everything all the way to the ground. So when you think of something that's been burned, you think of it being all black. That's not the case in prescribed fire. You have pockets where no fuel burned. Either there wasn't burnable fuel or it was a little bit wet there or the fire just didn't make it there. So our goal is not to blacken everything. Our goal is to provide that management tool to the system. So um, when you go out after a fire, you'll see some areas where it looks like we didn't even touch. And that may be an area where fire typically wouldn't travel anyway. So we don't spend fuel and time trying to burn things that probably don't burn anyway. All right. Well, thanks, Michelle. I appreciate you doing this for us. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. You too. Well, Wild Wanderers, that concludes another episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. I want to thank Michelle Foss again for helping us understand the value of prescribed fire, especially as it relates to the oak savanna, but also the planning and safeguards that go into conducting a prescribed burn. To learn more about Fontenelle Forest or to plan a visit if you're in the Omaha area, go to fontenelleforest.org. If you're enjoying the podcast and want to support future episodes, please consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. 
You can also follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. If you have a question or comment about the podcast, you can reach me by email at dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.